Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Bookable. Bookable is a podcast. It's a show that dives into a single book with the author as tour guide. It features engaging sound design, tight interviews, dynamic music. It is less a book report or a book club and more something entirely new. It's a book exploded into audio form. Bookable cracks open nonfiction bestsellers, national book award winners, obscure cult classics, works in translation, all in the name of helping you decide what to read next. Bookable is hosted by author Amanda Stern, creator and host of the Happy Ending Music and Reading series in New York, and it features your favorite and soon-to-be favorite authors sharing stories both in and around the book with deep dives into how the work came to be. Guests include Alexander Chi, Mira Jacobs, Susan Choi, Julie Oringer, Edgar Carrot, and Jennifer Egan, among many more. Each Sunday, listeners can expect engrossing interviews, creative sound design, and mood-provoking scores as you settle in to explore a new book one that everyone's talking about, a classic, or even something slightly obscure with the author leading the way. Bookable is brought to you by Loud Tree Media. You can listen to new episodes every Sunday by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this program. All right. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have Stephen Graham Jones on the program today. His latest novel is called The Only Good Indians. It is available from Gallery Books, and he's the perfect guy to talk to for this, the 666th episode of the Other People Podcast. When I saw that this uh, show was about to arrive at its 666th episode, I thought it would be natural to talk to a writer of horror fiction. And Stephen Graham Jones is among the best at that. And he has lived quite a life, and we had a great conversation. I'm excited to share it with you in a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company, publisher of the memoir This Is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire by Nick Flynn. It's a darkly beautiful, mesmerizing work from the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. This is the night our house will catch fire as a breathtaking work of spare lyricism and astonishing insights. It recounts Flynn's 1960s childhood, his attempts to understand his mother, and at times loving, at times destructive woman 
who ultimately took her own life. This is a rare book that deals openly with marriage and childhood trauma and confronts some of our deepest ethical dilemmas. This is The Night Our House Will Catch Fire, the new memoir by Nick Flynn, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. So one more reminder about the new thing uh, that we're doing on the other people's social media feeds. The hashtag is where I listen. If you want to send a photo of where you listen, like take us, like if you happen to be listening somewhere and you want to take a photo and send it to us to let us know where you are in space, you can DM a photo to my social media director, Joseph Grantham, at Twitter. The show's handle is at OtherPPL. Or you can send it to us on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. You can also email me a photo. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Let us know where you are, city, state, country. And if you want to write something else, tell us why you listen or where you listen or why you listen, where you listen. Go for it. It's a nice thing to do, I think. Right? Let's connect. So my guest today is Stephen Graham Jones. He's the author of more than two dozen books, the latest of which is a novel entitled The Only Good Indians. It's available now from Gallery Books, and I'm very pleased to have him here on this program as my 666th guest. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Stephen Graham Jones. How I got into horror was I read a lot of horror coming up. You know, I started out reading Westerns when I was 11 and 12, Westerns in action and Conan the Barbarian. But then when I was 16, maybe 17, I think it was 17 possibly, I read my first Stephen King. That was Tommyknocker. Stayed up all night reading it. Terrified me to no end. I still love that novel. Dove into the rest of Stephen King, discovered Dean Koontz, Clive Barker, everybody else, you know, in the, in the 80s and early 90s. Just kept going. And then I think my third novel, my third novel, Demon Theory, is horror. And, you know, my first novel, it's not listed as horror, but it's got giant coyotes eating people and all kinds of weird stuff going on. So horror is just in my veins. It's I'm hardwired for horror, I feel like. What do, what do you, but like, why? Do you know why? Why me specifically? I, I write, I ascribe it to when I was in eighth grade. We were living outside Austin, Texas, a little, little place called Wimberley. And I got to run in with a group of other eighth graders who had a friend at the video store. And every Friday afternoon after school, that we would go in to the video store and come away with a stack of six or eight, you know, Jason, Freddie, Michael. And we'd go to my other friend's garage, which was out in the woods, separate from his house. And there was a TV in there and a little, a little couch and a VCR. And we just watched Slasher after Slasher. And come about two in the morning, my friend's dad would get drunk enough to put on his Freddy glove and come scratch his plastic claws down the outside of that metal garage door, and that would just terrify us to no end. <laughs> we'd die. We just we just we would just pile out the side of that garage, that side door, and run through the blackness of the night. And um, if we made it to the creek and jumped in, we were safe. I don't know why that was a rule, but that was the rule. And that feeling of running through the blackness with tears going back to my eyes terrified and also smiling at the same time i feel like that is what i'm always looking for when i read and when i write horror and that's kind of what just that that thrill that being so so alive is what i like about horror oh that's interesting that's an it's interesting to think of it that way i mean i feel like when we go to read something we're trying to feel something or hoping to at least and if somebody oh, can man, if, sure. some, if somebody can scare the shit out of you <laughs> that's a, mm -hmm. you know that's a, that's a feeling 
It is. Horror can change your behavior. It can make you turn off the lights in your house in a different sequence at 11 o'clock at night. It can make you edge along the wall to get to your bed instead of just walking brazenly across the middle of the bedroom floor. You know, and that I love that horror puts you on a string like that. It turns you into a puppet, a puppet of um, not necessarily the writer, but a puppet of your own terror, you know, your own dread. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I guess this is like the common question for writers of horror is their relationship to fear and whether writing horror diminishes fear, you know, and the role that it plays in their day-to-day lives. Like, do you have a healthier relationship with it as a result of writing in this way? Or do you th- feel like you have maybe like a, like just a, like a heightened sense of terror and this is your way of exercising it? <laughs> I think it's the second one. I always have the idea that, if I can trap this nightmare that I had three nights ago or for, or for six nights in a row or however it is, if I can trap it on the page in a way that um, I can pass it on to someone else, like the videotape in the ring, that I'll no longer be burdened with it. I'll no longer be infected with it. But really all that ever happens is it gives my terrors and my nightmares like higher delineation. You know, it gives them more resolution. And so I'm more scared. Um, I know a lot of horror writers and horror filmmakers as well because they know the mechanics of a scare, they have a harder time themselves being scared. That's not the case for me. I do understand the mechanics of a scare. It's just the mechanics of a joke, basically. But um, I get terrified when I'm writing horror. People always say that, how do you write so fast? Or why do you write so fast? And the reason I write so fast is because I'm terrified. Because to me, writing a novel or a story is being in a dark terrifying tunnel and i'm just racing as fast as i can to get that light at the other end because i am terrified Hmm. and so how fast do you write oh i used to do the three-day novel contest so i mean i I, you know i could probably still do a novel in three days if i had to you know these days give me about four to six weeks and i can kick out a novel pretty well and it's publishable yeah well i mean i think it's published well my editor sometimes thinks it needs a lot more work and i put the more work into it of course but yeah i can get the first draft down in four to six weeks and i'm a a big believer and you write your first draft with your heart and then you come back and revise with your brain you know so you've got to do whatever you can in in that first draft to shut down your critical faculties so you can accidentally do something good if you think too much you're always going to be second guessing yourself you're always going to be trying to um position this text in relation to an audience or history or the ages or the critics or any of that. And you can't be worried about that. You just got to rush through without any thought with a lot of heart and hopefully a lot of blood. So how does it look? Are you writing on, on a word count basis or do you just sit down at a certain time and work for that period? Or like, what is the, what is the actual uh, process look like? It's usually not a word count. I do tend to keep a word count up on my screen on my I use pages, but I don't try to ring like a 1200 word bell or a 5,000 word bell or anything like that. And I don't do pages either. I try to move more in story units and that'll often take the shape of a chapter or a scene in a chapter if it's a long chapter. And once I get to the end of that and then I feel like I've earned like my carrot is that section break or that chapter break and I can go outside and work on my truck or go play hacky sack or do or do whatever you know i can do other stuff it's not that i i mean it's not that writing is not what i want to be doing to me writing is playing with dragons it's the best thing ever but you have to do things with your body with your hands you can't just do the mind all the time or i think you get lost in your own mind yeah no i, I think there has to be some kind of counterpoint like i like to hike 
Um, I, I feel like that's part of writing for me. You know, I know a lot of writers, yeah. I, I know yeah. a lot of writers who I ride my bike a lot too, or, you know, there are writers mm-hmm. who, who like to run, but I don't understand that the writers that mystify me are the ones who like literally just sit at home and just read and write. That's all they do. <laughs> and yeah, it, that, that, that Emily Dickinson lifestyle, of, you know, shutting yourself in your attic and just writing and wishing evil on people or whatever it is you do when you're in an attic. Um, I can't imagine that either. I mean, in, in this shutdown times, we all kind of are in some version of an attic, of course, with our word processors. But like, I, I ride my bike as well. I spend at least two hours every day banging up and down the trails. You know, if, I, if I'm not out there, then I go crazy. Um, I get too jittery to, to be able to write anymore if I don't go burn some energy. So I want to ask you, you said something earlier that I feel like listeners at home might be wondering about which is the mechanics of a scare and the similarity they have to the mechanics of a joke like what are the mechanics of a scare is it really something you can boil down into some fundamentals you know it's it's about um lulls i think it's about first you establish what's normal and then you give the reader the intimation that there's something in the darkness you give them a rustle out there in the leaves or or whatever but you don't deliver that immediately. You have the character who is, you know, victim to that scare. Be like Ripley on Alien and on the Nostromo when she's looking for the Xenomorph. You know, she's going through all this, all these tunnels of pipes and everything, and she rounds a corner and that's not the alien. Alien. She rounds a corner and that's not the alien. So the tension keeps gets ratch- The tension ratchets up higher and higher, and somewhere along there, you usually release that tension with a bit of humor with a cat jumping out or something ridiculous like that. And, and that allows the tension to reset. And then you, it's like, you've got your foot on a pump. You pump it back up slowly with each step, with each look in the darkness, and then you deliver something. Um, I think, uh, the, as the mechanics of a scare is that, or maybe it's just the ingredients. Maybe I should say ingredients. I think it's 80, 85% dread with a spike of terror at the end. Like dread is sitting on your couch, staring at your front door, waiting for someone to knock, waiting for something to knock. Terror is opening the door and seeing who just knocked. And as a fiction writer, you have to put your reader on that couch, staring at the door for the majority of the time. What about pacing? Uh, you know, I feel like, you, you know, you're, you're talking a bit about this as you as you speak about sequencing and the build. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in literary fiction, I was just having a conversation not too long ago on this show with a writer. And we were talking about writing about personal pain and how you're supposed to slow down where it hurts, <laughs> which is a little mm-hmm. bit counterintuitive. It's hard. It's hard writing, but it's good for the reader. You know, mm-hmm. you know a lot of times mm-hmm. I think the impulse is to rush through the painful parts. Mm-hmm. When it comes to delivering uh, like a really authentic, like visceral scare on the page, is the is the does the principle apply? Like, are you is slowing down when things get really intense the the way to go? I, I think it is. I think it's. I, I think of it less as slowing down and more about dilating the moment. The same way, like, you know, I, I read about a um, experiment they did in a lab where they showed people flashcards on a video screen and they had them write down which of them they could remember in what sequence. And then they put them on the edge of like a ball pit or something or a foam pit. And as they were falling back into the foam pit, they showed them a different series of flashcards on the video screen. And then afterwards had them write down what they remembered. And they remembered so much better as they were falling 
than as they were just sitting in a chair. And it's because in these times of um, intensity, our mind clicks up and goes faster and faster. And I think it's trying to take like snapshots of every slice of an instant. And so in horror, there's a lot of intense moments like that. And so I think it, we have to slow down for those moments and process the moral revulsion, the visceral revulsion, um, process the sensory input. We have to do all that and not do it like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. They have to be textured together in like this big ball of yuck that you throw at the reader's face. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. What about living in these times? I mean, again, this, I think, is probably a question that is commonly posed to writers of horror uh, you know, nowadays, but we're kind of living through a nightmare. I think we're living through a nightmare with the pandemic and with all that it entails. And I think we're living through a nightmare with this presidency. That's, that's just my opinion, but I think it's widely shared. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that's actually happening in the world that, you know, would qualify, especially in years past as the stuff of horror fiction. And now it's our reality. Like, how does that, does that change your relationship to the work that you do? Like, how do you process this as somebody who, you know, lives in this kind of imaginary realm on a day to day? You know, my imaginary realm I live in on the page has always been a retreat from the real world, like on the page for 25 pages at a time or for 400 pages at a time, I can engage a world that makes sense, a world that, that where you pull this, that happens or a world where this misdeed occurs and it's punished you know three months later or 10 years later or whatever it is on the page the world makes sense the real world to me has never made any sense i can order i can go to kentucky fried chicken and order you know crispy chicken and they give me grilled chicken and i cannot imagine the chain of events that led to me getting grilled chicken when i wanted crispy chicken and on the page i can explain it and i can't i can't explain the real world the real world doesn't make sense to me and so the way that this, you know, nightmare we're living through has affected me, I think, is that I'm just like burrowing deeper into my imaginary safe place, I guess. I mean, I'm not saying that's a noble thing. I should, I should be out trying to change the world, you know, but being an artist, all I've got is my art, or that's what I feel like I've only got anyways. So I write books, I write stories, and I do try to push back against the world. I, I don't know if I necessarily offer a corrective or any kind of um, 
prescription or anything, but I do try to call out the things that I see are wrong anyways. How many books have you written in quarantine? Like six books now? What? Um, man, since quarantine, oh, I don't know. March. You, oh, since March. This would be since March. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've written any. I've been doing revisions and scripts since March mostly. And, you know, versions and versions and layers and layers of scripts because, you know, studios and executives always want, always want redos. But, um, wait, so wait, you're, and you're, you're I, a screenwriter as well? I'm starting to mess with that. Yes. Oh. And it's, it's fun. And I'm doing comic books too. And I just had to do a big revision on a comic book I've got coming out. And, um, it's weird. I hadn't thought about that. I think the year before, I think I wrote three novels last year, maybe four. And this year, oh no, no, I'm lying. I started a novel in December and then I finished it in February. So right before the pandemic started, I finished a novel. So I kind of wrote one this year, I guess. So how much caffeine do you drink? Any? No, this might, um, um, yeah, I drink a lot. I don't drink coffee. I can't even, I found the worst thing about being a writer for me anyways, is that, people always want to interview me at coffee shops and I'm always, I have these like swimmy headed interview experiences because the smell of coffee just repulses me. I always try to sit outside if I can at a coffee shop and I will drink tea and I love caffeine drinks and I have caffeine pills and I have caffeine gum. I love (laughs) caffeine. (laughs) Well, I'm just like, okay, this is making me feel better for somebody who's writing three and four books in a year. I'm like, there's gotta be some kind of amphetamine happening. <laughs> yeah. It used to it used to be candy, candy and vanilla coke, but I finally decided that's not really a healthy way to live, you know? So I'm trying to I have the idea that like pure caffeine is healthier and I'm sure like I'll be like Philip K. Dick and start seeing the pink lights at some point here, you know. I think Philip K. Dick was doing more than caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> so what's a what's an example? I mean, you've touched on some authors already in conversation that inspired you, but what is an example in your view of the perfect horror novel or one that comes close? You know, I think the most perfect horror novel I've read lately is gonna be Gemma Files' experimental film. She's um, out of Canada. I think Cheezine put this out maybe three, four years ago, something like that. And that novel is about some filmmakers who, as as we all move into like a more digital rather than an analog age or space, um, they discover that there's um, terrifying possibilities in old film anyways and it's that novel just terrifies me i bet i've read that novel five or six times now and just as far as structuring and pacing and everything and stakes that novel just does it all to me i love i love that novel i love teaching that novel too i've never taught it and had students not fall in love with it as for but as for like going back further i think the shining might be one of the most perfect horror novels because at the end of it, it does that necessary thing that so many books, movies, stories don't do, where, um, 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 what's his name? Um, Jack, ha- Jack or? No, Dick, Dick, um, what's his name? Halloran, Halloran, Dick Halloran. Right. Um, he, at the end, has a moment of hesitation where he can walk around the edge of the shed and um, be kind of a minion of the presence in The Shining and dispatch um Danny Danny Torres you know and um I love that that after the horror 
is over, it's not really over. I mean, I know we all expect we in a slasher, you knock Jason down, the credits roll, and we expect after the credits for his eye to open behind the mask or a finger to move or something. That that's like built into the horror genre for sure. But I think Stephen King with Dick Halloran having that moment of indecision at the end of The Shining is one of the strongest examples of that. One of the purest, I guess I should say. I remember, uh, that's a book, I, I don't remember much, but I do remember reading The Shining in like seventh grade. And I remember reading the back half of it in the living room at my house with my parents in the room. Like I had to have other people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm that way too. When, when I'm watching horror movies, I'll bribe my wife to come sleep on the couch because I usually will start a movie at like at midnight and she'll be asleep already. But if she'll come sleep on the couch, then I know that I can be kind of safe. And it's not because she's like a meat shield or anything. It's just the idea that someone else is I, like, I can't be stuck into the ceiling because there's a witness, you know, that, I think that's how it feels. Yeah. I have a hard time. I, I say this a lot, but I've have, I have a harder time as an adult and especially as a father watching upsetting things and reading upsetting things at night. Like, Oh yeah, it's kind of it makes it hard for me to sleep. You know, not that I'm a great sleeper to begin with, but if I watch something super heavy before bed, I will inevitably have dreams or not be able to mm -hmm. sleep through the night. Same, same here, man. And you, know, you were asking about how has the pandemic changed me, and I didn't realize this, but starting about man, this is probably about April, my dreams are going crazy too because I'm reading, reading, watching, imbibing all this horror. And what I found was a curative for me, anyways, was long about 1230 at night when I'm starting to get ready to go to bed, instead of watching a horror short or reading a horror story or something, I queue up like a 30 rock or just something ridiculous, some old sitcom, you know, and I watch 22 minutes of that. And that puts me in a good place where I don't have as many nightmares and completely I'm, I'm liking it a lot. You know? No, you know what I call that? I call that a palate cleanser. I think like if you watch yeah. some horror, you know, you watch some horror movie, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you need to like have some, you know, like watch Sports Center for 15 minutes <laughs> before you go to sleep. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. So, what about your, uh, like, where are you from? Are you, I think I read that you're from Midland, Texas, or at least that's where you were born. Is that right? I was born in Midland. I grew up about 20 miles east of Midland, a little place called Greenwood, which was not on the maps when I was growing up. I don't think it is yet either. We were just a bunch of trailers out in the pasture, all oil field workers and farmers, a few cowboys. And we were the biggest town to us, close to us was Stanton. It was about five or six miles away, and it's 3,000 people. Um, but yeah, I just grew up up in the pastures in West Texas. Isn't, that, isn't Midland where George W. Bush was from? It is. Did you ever? Yes. Did you have any experience with him growing up? Did you ever see him around? <laughs> I, I, no, I never. Well, if I did, I have no idea that I did. But uh, my, my closest brush, I guess, with any of that you know, dynasty would be I was a, a night custodian for a while in a building that someone told me his family used to own. That's as close as I ever came. That's it, huh? Okay, so you're <laughs> growing up out in the middle of, like, I'm picturing, like, a, a sun-baked field mm -hmm. in Texas. Mm -hmm. Midland is, like, orient me in the state of Texas. It's so big. I, I'm trying to picture Yeah. Uh, Midland is named that because it's exactly, well, I don't know, I don't know to the mile, but it's pretty much exactly between Fort Worth and El Paso. And like, if you look at the most Southeast corner of New Mexico, that little corner that digs into Texas, that's pretty close to where Midland is right there. And yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all pastures and cotton fields. And I remember lying in bed at night being, you know, 10, 12 years old. And back then all the, um, 
oil pumps were butane. Now they're electric, but back then they were butane and butane pops, you know? And so you'd go to sleep and you just hear all these pops all across the pastures. And actually as for the geography of Midland, it's, um, it's flatter than Kansas. We all think Kansas is the flattest place, but Midland's even flatter than that. And as for the animals, there's been hogs and deer moving lately, but when I was growing up, there weren't no hogs and deers. It was all rattlesnakes and coyotes and jackrabbits, occasional, occasional cottontail, hawks, owls, but lots and lots of rattlesnakes, man. Lots of mesquite, very few trees. And you had, uh, what, what was your dad working in the oil fields or something? Uh, my my stepdad at the time was working in the oil field. Yeah, like just out on the. What do you do out there? I guess you got to like man the the. Yeah, barracks I mean, or you can be a roughneck, which most people most people in the oil field will start out being some level of roughneck, and then they can either go up the like chain of command and you know be a site boss or something, or they can kind of cav off and be a pumper. And what a that's what my stepdad at the time was a pumper. And what a pumper does is for 10, 12 hours a day, you drive around in a truck from tank to tank and you drop a reel with a weight on the end of it, like a fishing reel, down into the tanks and you reel it back up and you see where the oil starts on the line and it's 40 feet or it's 45 feet and you write that in a little notebook and you put it in a mailbox by the tank and you go on to the next one and you do that all day. Uh, I'm guess I'm guessing now it's probably automated with satellites and GPS in some way, but back then it was a manual operation. And I used to go with him to do that all day, and it was pretty. I mean, it was fun to a kid, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. But uh, what, and what kind of kid were you? Like, I'm picturing a very energetic kid. I, I was reading your bio on your website, and it was like, how you said you had like hundreds of stitches by the time you were yeah, like five yeah. years old. You know, you you That's... seemed like you you were probably a handful. You know, I, yeah, I had a lot of stitches and I still get a lot of stitches and injuries and broken bones because I think it's because I'm just really optimistic. I always think this will probably work, you know, and it doesn't always work. So I end up broken and having to go to the doctor and the emergency room again. But that's been my big thing about this last year, year and a half of my life is, you know, I'm 48 now and I don't stitch together as well as I used to. And so I'm trying really hard to stay out of the emergency room and I'm doing pretty good. I've had some pretty good bike wrecks and had to have x-rays and stuff, but the x-rays showed that nothing's broken. It's just hurt really badly. So I'm doing all right, man. But yeah, I was, I don't know if I was a handful, but I guess an example would be when I was in daycare. This is one of my very first memories and I'm probably five years old, maybe, maybe six. I don't know. And um, number one, this daycare, I never got to go to recess because to go to recess, you had to drink your milk, your white milk. And I've never liked milk. I don't do dairy at all. And so I would have to sit there at the window with a glass of milk in front of me and watch all the other kids playing. I never got to play, which really bummed me out. But um, my one of my very first memories is somehow I'd get hold of a flint and steel. And during nap time, I would like army crawl out of my little pad into the nursery where all the babies were. And because it was dark in there, and I would hide under their beds and make sparks and try to start fires. And um, I never never started a fire, I don't think, but I got in trouble a lot of time for sparking <laughs> stuff. <you know? laughs> so what, what is it? What is a flint and steel? How does a five year old get their hands on such things? Uh man, I don't remember. The flint was everywhere. You can find flint everywhere, and of course, steel is everywhere. I guess I just put them together. I mean, it wasn't like a kit, like a flint and steel kit. Oh, like, okay, it, okay. Like you could at pro shops, but um which worked great those things are great i love those kits but yeah i think this was just some random junk i had when i remember when i was little one of our things was we used to love to get big blocks of flint and heat them up in a fire 
and then have a bucket of water handy and use sticks and stuff and put the flint into the bucket and just watch it shatter because the temperature change shatters it. And that was, that was what we did for fun. That was one of the things we did for fun. So flint and flint is just a kind of rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, okay. it's what you, you can like chip it and make a good arrowhead or a little knife, stuff like that. Yeah, I used to go, I grew up in Wisconsin, and that was like one of the things I remember from growing up is just walking around the woods looking for arrowheads. Yeah, yeah. I feel like little little boys do that, right? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Where, yeah. Where, can we find, where can we find weapons? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what was your mom up to? Like you, your, your stepdad, you said, was working in the oil fields, and then your mom was around? Oh, yeah, she was around. Um, what did she do? You know, I was talking about my version of coffee. I think it starts with her, actually. I hope she doesn't listen to this, but... I remember when I was in young elementary, she would be in the living room smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and talking to some friend she had that was down the street who had always come. They would talk for like four and six hours. I don't see how a human can do that. But she would always, when I would come through going from one place to another, she'd hold her coffee cup out and say, Stephen, give me some coffee. And I'd have to stop and go get her cup and walk to the kitchen and pour the pour from the coffee pot into the coffee mug and my revenge, or what I saw as my revenge, was I would fill it up so that it was like water tension, liquid tension was the only thing keeping it from beating over the edge, you know. And I would balance it into the living room to give to her, hoping that some of it would spill out once she got it, which is quite evil and passive aggressive of me, I understand. <laughs> but um, to hold it still, I had to hold it close to me, which meant I had to, the whole walk from the kitchen to the living room, I had to be smelling that coffee. And that's how I learned to hate coffee. Wow! Yeah, that makes yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but no, she was around. She was always doing jobs. Um, she always had jobs. Let's see, I don't even remember. She had so many jobs, I can't remember them all. But she did a lot of stuff. Yeah, and she was a single mom for long, lot, a lot of our growing up too. And she, so she was always working. Yeah. You got siblings? I do. I have. I grew up with. Let's see, three, three. Scott, three brothers, and then I had a stepbrother who was like a few months older than me, and I also have three sisters. I didn't grow up with them. You didn't grow up with them? No, not with the sisters, just the brothers. Well, where were the sisters? They were with my dad. He was, well, he was living, he was Air Force, so he was all over the world, really. They were with him, mostly. Oh, okay, okay. And was he in the picture? Did you Did you know him, like when you were growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. He would always come through. Yeah, he would always come through town, and we'd go eat at Gartsky's, I think it was called. They had buffalo wings. That was my first time ever eating buffalo wings. Yeah. And uh, was he a pilot? No, he was in the pilot training program, but then he um, had to get grounded for medical reasons. You know, which was quite a bummer to put in all that work, learning how to do it, and then you know have your blood pressure keep you from it. Oh, damn. Yeah, I mean, you got to have like a, you got to have just the right makeup to be able to do that. Like, not just in terms of yeah. physical health, but like physical stature. Like, you have to be the right size, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the right size. Everything worked out. Just his blood pressure was just a click too high. You know. Damn. So yeah. I read, uh, like I was, you know, reading up, and there was a teacher. You said like your seventh grade teacher meant a lot to you. And this is a, a story that I hear over and over again on this show is that there's often a like a single teacher in a writer's life who mm. had a particular impact. Mm-hmm. and help help to set that person on their way um yeah. usually in the in the direction of writing but what was yeah. what was the deal with this seventh grade teacher you know actually i would if i'm gonna say the one teacher who put me on my path i would actually call out my freshman composition 
teacher from um, my first year of college. And number one, I never meant to go to college. Um, I always just want to be a farmer. But then my mom surprised me. She said, you've always been reading books. Here, you can go to one semester of college and see how you like it. And so she had saved up enough money and sent me to college. And I mean, I didn't graduate high school the right way. None of my brothers graduated high school in the right way or at all. Um, and I did. I went and got hooked. And, you know, I had to work and loan my way through the rest of it. But what happened was, um, it's kind of a, it's probably a little bit of a story, but I'm sitting in the back of my World Lit 2 course, listening to Spencer, a Spencer lecture or something, and there's like 300 kids in the, in the audience, and the auditorium is dark. I'm in the very back with a spiral and a pen. A couple of police officers come in, lower their glasses, start casing the place, and I know they're there for me because every time there's cops in the area, they're always there for me. And sure enough, they see me and they pull me out, and I go out there. And instead of like volunteering, I wasn't there. It wasn't me. I'd learned by that point to just let them do the accusing so I could then do the, then do the denying. If you start with denials and you get busted every time, you know, and they turns out that it was nothing I had done. They were there because one of my uncles had been burned terribly over his whole body and they didn't expect him to live. And the town I was in had the best burn unit in the region. They had airlifted in there and I was the only family member they could find. So they delivered me to the burn unit ICU. And I sat there with him for three days, three nights, waiting for him to live or die. And all I had was that pin in a spiral. And I got bored, wrote a story. And when I came back to Composition 2 on Monday, I, after missing two days, I didn't have my personal essay I was supposed to have written. But I tore those sheets out of my spiral and gave them to the teacher and said, um, this proves I was doing something. Maybe I'll get partial credit. And she you know, shrugged and accepted it. But then... Um, she liked it. She passed it on to another person in the English department who typed it up for me and entered it into a departmental award or contest. And I won just for telling a story. And that blew me away that you can win $150 for lying, you know, because I was always getting in trouble for lying, but I could actually get a check for lying. So without that teacher liking my story and passing it on and probably giving me full credit for it, I forgot about that then I doubt if I ever become a writer. I wasn't an English major, so it was just kind of random that that happened. What school were you at? Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Okay, yeah. That's out of West Texas, right? Mm -hmm. It is. Um, what was the story that you wrote? It was called The Gift. It was about a girl who wakes up in the ICU, which is you know where I was stationed at the time. And... and her boyfriend who was in a car accident with her has been his ghost has come to her frosted window the it's, it's cold or something and he's doing designs on the outside of the window that she can see from her hospital bed and so it's kind of a love story really and also a ghost story i guess and i think it was it, it was i think it was a girlfriend who was hurt maybe it was a boyfriend who was hurt i don't remember anymore but it was called the gift and i think in retrospect I was stealing some of Dana Scully's narration from the X-Files, which I was really big into. Uh, well, you got you got to have your influences, right? Of course, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm also thinking, like, talk about a, like a, a solemn place and situation in which to write, to be sitting mm -hmm. at the bedside of a family member who's sustained burns all over their body and is hanging on to life. I mean, that's, yeah. that's quite a place to write. That's definitely a lot heavier than like your local Starbucks. 
you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it is. Um, and also, I should I should mention that 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 uncle who was in the burn unit ICU ICU who did love, he's still around. Um, he was the one who, when I was probably eleven, he said to me, "I noticed you've always been reading because I was just reading. I was reading soup cans. I was reading everything I could. I just loved to read. Reading made me feel whole when I was a kid, and still as well. But he led me down his hall." He lived up in the country too, and opened up his linen closet, and there wasn't sheets and towels and stuff in there. There was books. That was his library, and it was all mass market paperbacks, probably shoot, probably fourteen deep. I don't know, two hundred and fifty tall, just packed in there. And he told me, "Take three of these. When you finish them, bring them back and get three more." And it was all Louis the Moor, Mac Bolan, Conan the Barbarian, and I did that, and I worked through his closet like that, and that. I mean, I don't, it's probably too grandiose to say it saved my life, but it kind of gave me a direction anyways. Yeah. No, that's, that's interesting to me how certain people, you know, you find your way into books as a kid and that the act of reading just becomes a kind of addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It totally was. And I would always get made fun of by friends and coaches and everybody because I'd always have a paperback in my back pocket or a rolled up comic book, you know? And, and then when I went to, Texas Tech and became a philosophy major and I'd come home for the summer to work in the fields everybody would say um, so what are you going to do when you get out work at the philosophy factory you know <laughs> so I guess it worked out man. yeah well what did you what did you say maybe <laughs> yeah maybe yeah no I was just, I was just doing I was just doing undergraduate work because it was books and I love books but I knew that as soon as I rung that bell and got my degree I was going to come back and lease a tractor and be a farmer. But then I got word into grad school and got a PhD. And by the time I got my PhD, farming wasn't really an option because a lot of my family had washed out. I didn't have any like inroads there. So I just went and worked, did manual labor. I was working in a warehouse after my PhD because I'd done manual labor my whole life. And I figured I'd do manual labor my whole life. That's what I'm made for. You know? What do you mean? That's what you're like physically? Uh, physically, I've just always, yeah, I've always been able to work all day, or I had always been able to work all day. But the problem was doing that warehouse job, you know, throwing refrigerators, dishwashers, air conditioners. Um, I was supposed to wear a safety belt and on suspenders, you know. And I thought it looked a lot cooler to have it open and hanging than to tighten it up around my back. So I'd always leave it open and hanging. I don't know why I thought I needed to look cool in the warehouse. And so, sure enough, I hurt my back really badly and had to get a desk job. And because I had to get a desk job, that led me to be a book cataloger at a library, which led me to be a professor, which ended up giving me time and interaction to write all these books, I think. Hmm. Yeah, you know, manual labor, um, it takes a toll. I mm-hmm. remember, you know, I, I, I surely don't have as much experience with it as you do, but I worked a job the summer after my freshman year of college where I was on a construction site and I was basically just the foreman's bitch. Like I just did whatever. Yeah, I just yeah. did whatever, whatever, whatever nobody else wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, we, we were outside in uh, Arvada, Colorado, which is I think South yeah. of Denver. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it was, a, we were building a warehouse and I just remember being like what I was 18, 19 years old and looking at the guys on the site, a lot of whom were like my age now, you know, they're pushing at least late thirties, mm-hmm. you know, mid forties mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, I, I don't want to do that. Like, this is not sustainable. Like it was, you know, you're just baking in the sun mm-hmm. and, uh, it's hard, you know, yeah. it's hard on the body. And I, I, oh, I think that there's no way, unless you're, you're made of particularly strong stuff, there's no way to do it 
you know, much past the age of 50. I guess some people do. Yeah. Like I, I remember having a mover come move, uh, move us out of an apartment a few, you know, several mm-hmm. years ago. And mm-hmm. there was this dude who was like, I don't know, he might've been like, he might've been like 70 years old. And mm-hmm. that guy was like indestructible. You know, some people have mm-hmm. the, the, the genetic gift and the strength, but yeah. Um, yeah. most, most people, I think, you know, at some point you're going to sustain an injury or your body's just going to break down. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, one of my, my great grandfather was one of those guys who could keep working. I remember being 12 years old and hoeing cotton with him and he's 80 plus and we're out there in the 112 degree sun, just hoeing cotton for 10 hours a day, you know, and he was faster than I am, better than I, but faster than I was, better than I was. And he also he also could scythe, which you know those those big size like the Grim Reaper has. He could use one of those to take down a big swath of um, like a field. He could he could level the grass, you know, knock it all down. Give me a scythe, I'm going to cut my own feet off, and probably anybody else in the area's feet off because those are dangerous things. You have to really know how to work those, and he could do it. It was really neat to watch him. How how long did he live? Oh, late eighties, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he. Okay. Yeah, I think it was late eighties. It could have been early nineties. Well, but you know, I think there's something to the idea. Like this is what I tell myself anyway. I tell this to my parents too. I'm like, like the phrase, like just don't get off the bike. Like just keep mm-hmm. going. You know, mm-hmm. like if you sit yeah. down and you start resting and you decide you just can't do stuff anymore, then it's a, mm-hmm. it's like a death knell. You know, you got to keep moving. I totally agree with that. Yeah, keep going, man. We're all we're all sharks at some level. Yeah. So what about uh, you know you get out of you get out of college? You said you mm-hmm. got lured to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who who lured you? Two of my professors in undergraduate, they they said they pulled me into their office and they said, Stephen, you're graduating. What are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm going to go back home, lease a tractor, be a custom farmer. Enough of this school stuff. And they said, but you've got what it takes to go to grad school. And I said, first, what is grad school? I had no idea. Like people in my family didn't really go to grad school or or college or high school either. And um, so they explained it to me. And I was like, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work. And, but they, they kept badgering me about that. And so finally, just to keep them from talking to me all the time, I put out one application to philosophy school, one application to creative writing school and the creative writing school got back first and they said, Hey, come here we'll give you a little bit of money. You can keep your head above water, take some classes. And I thought, well, heck, I can put off farming for two more years. And then that turned into a PhD. You know, I did my PhD. I did my master's in two years, and then I did my PhD in two years. And then I went back to manual labor. So where was the? Where did you get your uh, graduate degrees? My master's was at University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, working with a guy, Will, Will Cobb, William J. Cobb, and also Barb Rodman. They're both very influential. And then I did my PhD at Florida State University, working with Janet Burroway mostly. She was my dissertation director, and she was amazing. Where did where did what did you uh, you got your PhD in English creative writing? So I got to do a creative dissertation, which it was crazy. Like my you know you have a committee for your PhD, like four people I think, and I think I had, but anyways, say four people, and if those four people aren't there at the defense, then you don't have a defense. You have to have a quorum. Two weeks before my defense, one of my committee members had to dive off for a family emergency, so I didn't have a quorum. And my dissertation director told me, you gotta, you got to fill that seat with somebody. It doesn't matter who. So I went to a Gertrude Stein teacher I'd had who we'd get along pretty well. 
And I said, hey, man, come sit on this, please, please, please. You don't have to read this stupid book. You don't have to vote yes for it. You can vote no. Everybody, maybe everybody else will vote yes, and your no won't matter. Um, I just need you to be a body. And he said, I can do that. And so he showed up two weeks later, and the novel I had printed up for him, which was a big thing, it was like four or 500 pages, it was totally marked up. And I was like, oh, crap, he read this thing. And then instead of asking me questions, he said, you probably don't know this, but I'm a publisher. And he was, the at the time, the publisher of um, Fiction Collective, FC2, which has you know, been around since 74. It's a really respected, um, innovative press they'd done a lot of good big stuff and he said i want to publish this and i said yeah i don't think so at the time i wanted to be thomas pension and i thought i gotta go to new york to be thomas pension you know so i told him no but then about three or four months later i came back with my tail between my legs and said hey you still up for publishing this said he was so he put it in the process damn okay and the rest is history yeah yeah i know crazy well i i never heard about the seventh grade teacher was that less impactful than i'm than i'm imagining it to be no no um you know i had it's hard for me i don't know which one i was talking about and whatever interview that was i had a lot of impactful teachers in my junior high the the one that i think of first was a coach he was a six six dude he'd been a wide receiver in college ball college football and he probably has saved my life more than any other teacher because one day he came to class in a bad mood and he sat there in front of us and he reaches into his pocket back pocket not front pocket because it wouldn't fit and he pulls out this enormous knife and um and he, he he sits there and he plays with it and he tells us that if any of us ever drink and drive then and hurt someone he knows that he doesn't matter who's trying to stop him, he's going to find a way to sneak into our window and cut our throats. And, um, and he was crazy. Enough. He was, he was crazy enough that I completely believed him. I don't know if everybody else believed him, but I was scared silly. And because of that, I've always like, if I've had one drink in the past, like 10 or 12 hours, I don't go near a call a lift. I get on the bus. I call someone to get me because I don't think I'm any, I don't think I'm confident to decide whether I can drive or not. And because I don't want my coach sneaking in my window and cutting my throat, you know, Wow. Okay. And then was there a seventh grade teacher who passed away? That's the one I think I'm recalling. There was. Yeah, there was. Yeah, she was, I think she was eighth grade, actually. She did. And um, she had epilepsy and she died while ironing her clothes, I believe. And her iron burned her, killed her, which was kind of sad. Um, We had had a tempestuous kind of student-teacher relationship. She, I remember once she made me stand in front of the class and she told everybody in class, I want you to all look at Stephen you all think he's funny now, but look at you wait and wait five years and see where he is, see if you still think he's funny, you know? And, and I was up there thinking, well, I'm not that bad, am I? But, um, but she was also, she also believed in me at the same time. She, um, she could see that I, uh, you know, I had a, I don't know, a wit about me or some sort of intelligence with books. I don't know, something. And, um, she believed, I, what, I guess the the way that she impacted me was that she was sad and disappointed that I was wasting any abilities that she saw in me. You know, she could see me throwing it all away and she didn't want that for me and her not wanting it for me, I think kind of made me not want it for me, if that makes sense. And I remember the day we came to school and found out she was dead. I remember standing in my locker and one of another guy who was, you know, a big tough dude. Um, I heard him behind me saying some joke about her or something, you know, dismissive or derogatory. And he, he and I ended up in a big fight and I've still got a scar on my back from, from, from throwing me up against something. And 
got the back of my shirt all bloody and everything. But yeah, that was that was Miss Everett. She was she was still important to me, or she is still important to me. What kind of kid? I mean, you you seem like you were a good kid in a lot of ways. Um, you know, bookish and um, hardworking, but did you have like a, it seems like you also might've had a little bit of a wild streak. Oh yeah, man. I was, um, always, I was constantly in trouble. I was always the one putting fireworks in the toilet or, um, trying to smoke a cigarette when the teacher was out of class. I can't smoke. I can't inhale or I throw up, but I could like pretend like I was smoking, you know? Um, and I was always the I was always in the principal's office. The school I went to most of the time coming up had a hair code. You had to have your hair above your eyebrows, above your ears, and above your collar. And you had to have your shirt tucked in at all times. And I didn't really fit in with that. So I was I got so many licks. This was back in the days when teachers were you know, um shop teachers, principals, vice principals, they could all give you licks, you know. So I was getting paddled constantly, all the time. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because corporal, it's called corporal punishment, yeah. I think. Yeah. That was that was in effect when I was in junior high, and I remember getting sent to the principal's office a couple of times and seeing that paddle hanging on the wall. And like that, oh. when you think about it, when you think about it now, seems completely nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, our sensibilities have changed for sure. And it never did, it never did, never did scare me straight or anything, you know. Um, it never did make me not do the next thing that I shouldn't do because I knew that I just had to pay with a little bit of pain, you know, and the pain would last five minutes and I could go back and have fun. So it never really mattered. You know, you got in a lot of fights as a kid, not as many as I should have, because I always had friends around me and I would always be the one that, you know, the other gang would say you over here, you know, we're going to, we're going to take care of you. My friends would often step, step between and do the fighting for me. I don't know why that is. Um, but that happened, I bet seven out of every ten times that would happen. Um, but, I, yeah, I had my share of fights like you do coming up, of course. Um, I don't think I'm a particularly good fighter or anything, but I am good at making people mad, you know? <laughs> well, then you're halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> now, um, you, are, you have uh, it's Blackfeet, the Blackfeet Indian heritage? Yes, yeah, I'm Blackfeet. Is that both sides or just one parent or...? Just, just my dad. Just your dad. Okay, and like, uh, that is not like geographically, Blackfeet Indians are from Montana, correct? Montana and correct. Alberta. Correct. Um, what happened was my grandfather, my father's father, was in the Air Force as well, and he was stationed in Montana, and he ran into my grandmother, or he met my grandmother going to typing school to be a secretary, uh, just off the reservation. And they got married, and then she went around with him base to base to base. And he just happened to process out at retirement in Big Spring, Texas, which is right close to Midland. And so it was totally random that we ended up in Midland. It could have just been wherever he happened to be. Do you ever, do you ever, have you ever been up to Montana, or do you have any contact with um, relatives or, you know? Yeah, I've been going there since I was probably 12, I guess. and yeah, I got lots of friends and family up there. I try to get up there ideally twice a year, once in November to hunt and once in the second week of July for Indian days, which is our big powwow. What do you hunt? Elk. Uh, elk, okay. and we usually have deer. We usually have whitetail and mule deer tags on us as well. And we usually have an antelope tag as well, but I don't really like how antelope tastes, so I don't really have any reason to shoot an antelope. 
what do you do you use uh guns or are you crossbow or what is it no yeah a rifle um simply because we always are like if we can squirrel away five days that's really lucky and to to do a proper bow hunt you have to scout the heck out of the terrain and usually you'd be up in a stand and be really really patient um Whereas a, a rifle, sometimes you feel like a sniper, like you're cheating. You know, you'll see an elk 200 yards away, and if you line up and get a steady rest, you can usually pop that elk. And afterwards, you feel bad. You're like that elk was just eating some grass, being happy. You know, um, it feels it feels you feel more honest doing it with a bow. I suspect. I don't know. I you know I built my own bow. I've got it up here somewhere. And um, I love archery. I love to you know zing arrows in the targets. I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not as good as I could be because I don't practice enough. I've got friends that are like, they can swing a bottle from a tree on a string and hit that bottle, that kind of stuff, you know, which I'm really impressed with. I'm not that good. I aspire to be that good, but I do plan on taking this bow I built out into the field and getting at least a deer. I think that would be a nice like cycle to be a part of, to build your own weapon, to get some meat, you know? And you can field dress like an elk out in the, out in the field yeah. in Montana? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I remember the first elk I ever dressed out, we were 12, we'd shot a bull, and I, I was 12, my cousin, I think it was 11 on the reservation, and both of our dads were with us, and and they they like got their saws and knives to go do it, and me and my cousin said, no, no, we can do it, we got this, and they were like, are you sure y'all can do this, it's a big guy, and we said, we can do this. And I had this big Rambo knife I got at a flea market, you know, which was totally stupid, had a compass on it and all these saw teeth on the back so I could survive in the wild and everything. And, um, <laughs> and, and we could cut the belly open with that knife, but we couldn't get through the sternum. You have to pop the sternum to get the lungs and the esophagus and all that stuff out. And, and even my little, you know, Rambo saw blades wouldn't get through it. And my dad and my cousin's dad were offering us their saws. We're like, no, no, we're going to do this. And, the solution that we landed on was I, the elk was on its back. I would straddle the elk, sit on it, and hold its um, – I would put my fingers on the sternum and pull that skin as tight apart as I could, which would be about three-quarters of an inch. And I'm sitting on it backwards, so I'm, like, looking up its belly. And my cousin backed off about two truck lengths with my Rambo knife. And our plan was he was going to run forward and dive and use all his weight and strength to jam that knife in that three quarters of an inch between my fingers and that would, that would break the sternum. And my dad, my dad said, my dad said, this looks kind of dangerous. And I'm like, come on, we're doing this. And so he let us do it. And sure enough, my cousin cuts off a big chunk of my knuckle, you know, it's, it's still flat and I had to go to the emergency room and get all kinds of stitches and shots because that elk had tapeworms and they thought I might get tapeworms. And we didn't split the sternum either. My dad and um, my uncle ended up, finishing that elk for us but that was my first time doing that you know it's funny you talk about that rambo knife uh you know i'm, I'm born in 75 so we're same generation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i remember going into a con like a what was it like a drugstore or maybe like a hardware store when i was in fourth grade and for those of you who haven't seen you know first blood or Ram <laughs> you know any of the rambo movies like his his weapon of choice really is this huge uh hunting knife with you know a compass on it and i'm you know i remember inside of the handle there was like fishing line and you know it's a survival knife basically is i think the way that you define it and i want to say i walked into this uh store when i was in fourth grade and i was super into rambo 
you know, all my friends and I love those movies. And I bought that knife. They sold it to me. I was, <laughs> I was like 11 years old in suburban Wisconsin, you know, and just no problem. Here you go, kid. Here's a giant knife. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess in Wisconsin, they, they just tell you as long as you're not Ed Dean, you're doing pretty well. Huh? Yeah. I mean, it was, no, it was absolutely like, there were no questions asked. Like, I walked out of there with this like things like the knife is like half the length of my leg. You know? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, like, yeah. Completely crazy. But uh, well, that sounds cool, man. You see, it seems like you've had um, you know a lot of experiences like growing up like all over the place. You know, like you got Texas, you got higher education, you got. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it's on the the uh, Blackfeet Reservation yeah. in Montana. That's, that's where not, you are. Well, that's not where I am now, but that's where I did my first hunting. Yeah. 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 Um, so I want to talk to you about, you know, a little bit more about being in graduate school, getting your PhD, and then, like, like just having it in your head that like I'm going to finish up this PhD and go back to manual labor. Uh, like that was really the mindset. There was no sense of well, I'm going to do all this work, get my PhD, I'm going to be Doctor Jones, and then I'm going to. There was no sense of I'm going to go out and be a scholar or teach no. or anything like that. No, I never was working on my networking or my job interview capabilities or working up my, you know, CV. None of that. I was never interested. Or I never looked at the job listings because, I mean, I just didn't understand being a professor. That was just another realm, you know. I mean, I understood that I had professors, but I just couldn't imagine being at the front of the classroom. I just, I'm always the guy in the warehouse pushing the dolly. You know, that, that's that's where I'm most comfortable. And so you get out, you. Mm -hmm start working uh manual labor but it was the injury that that sent you mm -hmm. into the library into the library it is and you know the way that happened i mean the way it happened was i was not wearing my belt like i said but i was laid up for probably two weeks and at the end of those two weeks i could finally sit up in bed and so my wife started bringing me the classifieds and you know because we didn't have you know online stuff back then this is 97 98 and so we were going through the help wanted ads and circling things that we thought I could do that wouldn't involve my back. And the job, the thing we kept circling the most was bookkeeper. And so finally I got my nerve together and I called up one of those bookkeeping jobs. And as it turns out, it's not what I thought. I thought bookkeeping was you go to somebody's house who's rich and they have a big library and you like alphabetize their books by subject or by um, last name or something turns out it's accounting i had no idea that bookkeeping meant accounting so that was a wash but way at the bottom of all these job listings there's this one job that was vague about what it was but it said must pass spelling test and i like all my lights went off in my head because i've always been a natural speller so i went into that job sat across the table in an empty room from someone she read me 100 words. I wrote them down. She took them out of the room and graded them, came back and said, I spelled all 100 of those words right. I could have this job. That job turned out to be a book cataloger, a gift gift book cataloger at a library. And man, that was a dream. I had like benefits. I had, I didn't have to be at work at four in the morning. I could go at nine if I wanted or eight. And it was, it was a dream. I mean, I still worked two jobs. I ended up working the library. And then at night, I'd go to Sears and do night stocking. That's kind of working out of the warehouse. But, um, that was a, it was a dream, man, being a book cataloger. I still love that job. Um, and then from working there, I kind of was adjacent to some of the faculty, English faculty who would come in and request this book or try to find that book. I wasn't at a help desk, but, you know, they would find me back there. 
they knew I had an English degree. And one of them came over and said, Hey, we, we have a job opening. And I'm like, Hey, I got a job, but they kept saying I should apply for this. And uh, so I just put my name in the hat the same way I did for the professors who wanted me to go to grad school. I put my name in that job hat. Sure enough, I made it to the last three and then I got the job. And so I walk into the classroom in 1998 or 1999, not having taught. And I had to just figure it out on the fly as I went. And it was a dream really. Um, I remember that first semester teaching, I had my own office. The guy next to me, I was probably like, I don't know, eight weeks in the semester. I asked him, I went next door and I said, Hey man, I just want to see if I'm doing a good job. What are the, like, what's the threshold for success here? And, um, and he leaned back in his chair and got real thoughtful. And he said, you know, the last guy who had your job, he spent all his time down in that hall, down in that stairway at the end of the hall masturbating. And he said, you're not doing that. So I think you're doing a pretty good job. And I thought, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I thought I can probably swing this, you know. <laughs> well, if this is the if this is the standard we're we're keeping, I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah, for sure. I did I did wash my keyboard and my monitor that I inherited down pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> where now? Where was this? Texas Tech. Oh, this is at Texas Tech. Yeah. Okay. And and you've been doing that ever since. I have, yeah, and I really like it too. It's it keeps me like connected to the world because my impulse is not to listen to new music and like just be engaged with like who the Kardashians are or any of that stuff. I think without my students insisting that I stay connected to the world, that I would just kind of drift off on my own ice flow. And I think it's important for fiction writers to be connected to the world. I'm not saying I know really what's up with the Kardashians, but I know they exist anyways, you know? Um, and I hear, I hear new songs and I, I read stuff that I probably wouldn't have read otherwise if my students weren't telling me this is the most amazing thing. And yeah, the students and the students are so smart too. I think, I mean, maybe it's just cause I'm not that age anymore, but they seem just so far ahead of where I was when I was that age, just like developmentally in their writing. Like they can articulate things about stories and fiction that were completely mysterious to me. Like I didn't even suspect them, you know? Well, I mean that's good. You 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 hope that the that the species is making progress. You know, it's got to be exactly. heartening. I know it it is heartening and it's challenging too. I got to stay ahead of them if I'm going to be the teacher. So I just if I lay down a rule, you can do this or you should do this or don't do that, then I've got to follow that rule myself. I've got to be a good example. You know. Well, yeah, no, and I think that you know I I have a lot of affection for youth. Um, not not in the sense that I want to be young, um, though sometimes I guess I do, but. It's more that I have a certain level of trust in the wisdom of youth. There's something unspoiled about it. And mm-hmm. I think that it's healthy for people. I think it's a healthy symbiosis, period. I think it's healthy for younger people to, you know, to have the perspective of older people and yeah. of people who are older to keep in touch with people who are younger. I think when you have a big gulf between the two, it's not good for anybody. But yeah. it, keeps you, it keeps you young and vital and it tests you and... You know, the things change so fast. I don't think we necessarily give uh, enough uh, thought to that sometimes. Like how much, like like think back to our childhoods, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s. 
to where things are now culturally and otherwise, it really, you know, you can point to an endless number of things and say, my God, things have really shifted. Like we didn't even, we, we had rotary dial telephones when we were kids. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There was no, there was no internet, nothing. And now look at us, yeah. you know, everybody's, everybody's like diving into their phones every five seconds. But I, know. Um, I can't, I can't imagine you know. how, how terrifying it must've been for our parents too. Cause like I would go out on a Friday night and if I didn't come home by one or whatever, if I didn't come home till six in the morning, then my mom must've just been pulling her hair out. You know, like nowadays our kids have phones and we can, sometimes we can track them or we can call them and ask them where they are. And we can, there's like a tether, but man, back then when a kid left the house, that kid was gone. You know, that must, I, 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 the level of like anxiety that must've produced in the parents, I would think it's high. Um, I'm also assuming the same, um, terrors that we have now maybe they didn't have those same terrors back then but it's it's, hard, it's so hard to know because i think every generation thinks they're feeling things for the first time but i really i suspect that there's been versions of these same feelings through all the generations you know yeah well and you know you say that but i feel like nowadays parents I guess it depends where you are. Like, I'm not going to mm-hmm. let my kids go wander around Los Angeles. You know, it's just mm-hmm. not, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. I was a kid, we, we left the house in the morning and mm-hmm. we came home for dinner, you know, mm-hmm. like it was, yeah. nobody knew where we were and my parents seemed fine. You know, I mean, I'm sure they had some worries, but like mm-hmm. they weren't worried, they weren't worried enough to not let me do it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. We, yeah. We, we just took, took off. Like, I can't even fathom that. Even if we were living someplace out in the country, I wonder mm-hmm. if I would be that lax. I like to think mm-hmm. I would be, but like, mm-hmm. are we getting more paranoid? Like what's, what's going on with parents? Like, you know, in the, in this, yeah. uh, the, the curtailed freedoms. And like, I didn't wear a bike helmet when I was yeah. a kid. I was like, I was like going off ramps and down hills <laughs> and wiping out. And yeah. now, now my, you know, everyone you get on a bike and you're just like riding around the corner and it's like, put on a helmet, you know, like you're going <laughs> to, and I get it, you know, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like it's, you yeah. know, you don't want to sustain a head injury, but I think there's yeah. a level of like paranoia or something that's, that's set in and people are like maybe overdoing it a little bit. Possibly. Um, I think it's like the metric of has changed. Like you going out for, you know, from 10 in the morning until dinner versus how annoying it'll be to have you around the house, you know? And I think when parents let you go out in the, out in the world for eight, eight undocumented hours, um, they knew that X, Y, and Z can happen, you know, vaguely, but at the same time, worse is probably going to happen to you from them if you stay in the house, you know? And I feel like these days parenting has become much more, I want to say it's almost like, um, there's a lot more guilt associated with it. If you don't have your kids scheduled for 15 things after school every day, like soccer and dance and piano and voice and everything, you know, then it's easy to feel like you're not allowing them every possibility they can have when really they need, what they need is downtime just to dream, to imagine, to build sandcastles and stuff, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think that like the hyper scheduling thing drives me a little bit crazy. And I, I, I'm kind of, I'm, kind of one of those parents who none of the parents at school even know who I am, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily great. Like my wife is much better about interacting, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I just can't even engage. I can't engage with any kind of, uh, competitive parenting thing where it's like, you know, my, my kid is doing X, Y, and Z and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I just, I'm not doing it. And, uh, you know, I think that, I don't know. Maybe that was easier too when I was growing up. I think like there was 
maybe schools were better. I don't know what it was. It just seemed mm-hmm. easier. And maybe that's just a function of time and mm-hmm. maybe even more so it's a function of, you know, I was growing up in suburban Milwaukee. Maybe it's an easier scene than LA. You know? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I don't know. I don't know what's changed. Um, and it is, I think that, you know, we kind of, um, the impulse is always to idealize your own childhood and then compare it to, you know, today. And, I'm not sure who really wins in that scenario for sure. Um, Cause I mean, there were downsides to growing up when we grew up too, of course, you know? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea. My kids are 18 and 21 now. So I guess I don't have to figure it out anymore. <laughs> you know, hopefully. They, they go to, they go to see you. Like what are they up no, to? No. Well, one of them, one of them, yeah. One of them goes to see you. One of them is not going to see you yet. Might later. We'll see. Well, what are you most scared, like as a horror writer, what are you most scared of these days? What's like, what's occupying your fear brain the most? Um, that's a good question. I mean, contagion is the obvious thing in the world, of course. Um, and you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm not worried about myself getting sick. I'm worried, worrying about becoming a passive carrier and delivering it to people I care about, you know? So... That's that's a weird. I never I never would have anticipated that. Uh, I would have always thought I would be more scared that I was going to start coughing rather than somebody I live with is going to start coughing. You know, but the, I mean the climate issues terrify me. You know, I think the thing that terrifies me the most right now, just as a person, not necessarily as a horror writer, is just um, our the political scene, not the political scene, but the current administration, I guess. Um, I, don't, I mean, we all we all think we can make it go, go over if we vote, you know, right in November. But um, I don't know, man. It's going to have like ripples that are going to go for a while, and that concerns me. Um, you know, one of my friends from Pakistan, he was he told me about five years ago. He said, he said, look at America, how it's kind of factionalizing into conservatives and um and liberals. He said this happened where I grew up, and it wasn't long before society fell apart and they were killing each other in the streets, you know? And I think that's what I worry about most is things getting to that level or getting more to that level because they're practically at that level now. I know. Yeah. I, I, I worry about that too. I think the argument I try to make, you know, inside my own brain when I'm just gaming things out, but also when I'm in conversation with people, Mm -hmm across the aisle is that the situation that we're in now doesn't have all that much to do with politics in terms of the, Mm -hmm. like the, the most, um, uh, the most impactful danger, you know, the, the, the most dangerous aspects of it have nothing to do with policy issue. They have to do with the rule of law and they have to do with, um, the, the the maintenance of democratic institutions, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not, that's not politics. Like we can quibble, we can quibble over issues. I I think there's, you know, we should have, we should have an honest and robust debate over the issues. And I think there, I think we need a variety of perspectives and I don't think that I have any kind of uh, ownership of the truth. You know, Mm -hmm. I think this is a collective enterprise and we work our way to best solutions in an ideal scenario. But when you have a guy in office who's openly trying to steal an election and mm. suppress suppress the vote and who lies every other every other thing he says is a complete lie and who abuses women mm. and who locks up kids in cages at the border and rips babies out of their money like what what are we doing like this is this is not, it's not a political debate it's not yeah. a political debate and so 
if anybody out there is listening, like I, what I always say is like, he's going to hurt you too. You know, like, you know, like even if you agree with him on some policy issues, like think it over like this, it's not worth it. Whatever you're selling in exchange for some policy victories is quite a lot more than the policy victories themselves. And so I really hope people, um, vote, you know, no matter how difficult it is, you do whatever it takes to get your vote counted. Mm -hmm. We can't be, can't be cowed. You know what I'm saying? This Mm -hmm. is going to be a fight. This is going to be a fight. It's going to take all of us. And so Mm -hmm. I don't mean to to stand on a soapbox, but I think it's so important Mm -hmm. that I, I feel the need to speak out like over and over again. Like we have got to lean into this and lock arms and beat it back because the costs, if we don't are going to be enormously high for generations. No, I completely agree. And I feel like um, you, you were talking, mentioning all the like misinformation being fed into the pipeline, and I think all this like noise in the transmission, which is garbling the not not just that transmission, it's garbling communication in general, is landing us in a place where um, debate, discussion, conversation is no longer an option, and force seems to be the only thing that works, which is people fighting in the streets. You know, like like, like it's happening already. No, that does concern me a whole lot. And I don't, I'm not sure how I'm not sure how to clean up those lines of transmission anymore. There's so much noise in them, you know. Yeah, you know, you you bring up a really good point because I think about this as well. Uh, I am pretty much a free speech absolutist. Like I really believe in the freedom of expression. I believe that includes allowing somebody with whom you vehemently disagree to say their piece in the public square without reprisal. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that. That's what it's all about. It's yeah. about people the open exchange of ideas and people being able to say whatever they want to say. But I countenance that against what we're seeing on cable news and on Fox news in particular and on right wing talk radio and you know how these um, media entities are functioning as an extension of the state and are essentially just propaganda networks that are, that are actively fomenting division and hatred and violence and are spreading disinformation under the guise of being a news network. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's incredibly damaging to Mm -hmm. the social contract. And I do, I'm like the, the reconciliation process that I'm trying to navigate is how to reconcile freedom of speech with the civic responsibility you have when that is your stated, um, purview you know like i'm a news entity i'm a news program like doesn't there have to be some responsibility uh, Mm -hmm. and some fidelity to the truth like it it seems like we've lost that and i don't know how you legislate to make it so without curtailing um the you know what is it the first amendment uh you know the first amendment rights of whoever it is that's speaking do you see what i'm getting at no i totally understand that the the weird thing about that whole dynamic to me is that these news entities they started out just in this 24-hour news cycle as having to do things that would draw eyes that would get participation from viewers which for which they could sell ad revenue or subscriptions or whatever it is but then as they're they kind of sharpened and sharpened their targeting on a certain demographic or a certain attitude they found out if they feed them more and more of this or that bad pill that that audience gets more and more rabid and subscribes more hits the like button more or whatever it is and it's it's a very dangerous dynamic because i feel like a lot of those news entities probably didn't start out trying to espouse this or that idea they just wanted to get eyes they wanted to get participation but once they created this um 
this target audience, this demographic that was addicted to this stuff, then they just started amplifying that stuff up more and more. And it, it, I feel like, I do feel like those news entities now do subscribe to the ideals they espouse, but I think it didn't start out like that. I feel like it started out just trying to get viewers and this, that feels like a Philip K. Dick um, nightmare, you know? Yeah. Like once they realized they could make a shitload of money by mm-hmm. making people agitated and paranoid and mm-hmm. angry and hate filled, you know, they're like, mm-hmm. well, this is a great, this is a great business model. Exactly. It, it, you have to be, you have to be remarkably cynical and cold blooded to proceed with something mm-hmm. like that. You know, mm-hmm. like a pox on the houses of Rupert Murdoch and whoever <laughs> else, you know, decided that this was going to oh, be no. their life's work. Like, oh, what no. a, yeah. What a colo- what a colossal blight on humanity yeah. as yeah. their legacy. Yeah. Um so have you found a way to like uh, you know maybe it's too close or maybe I you know I I puzzle over this. You know, how do you integrate what's been happening into your work? Like have you tried to do this has it found its way into your fiction or into the screenwriting that you're doing in any kind of detectable way? And I think it has, but not in a checkbox way. I don't like I'm I am mad about a lot of stuff and trying to push back against a lot of stuff. But I think it's very important in your art not to have like a little list of things you want to include or push back against where you have to tick them off. I did this in chapter two. I'm going to do this in chapter six, that kind of stuff. Because then your art, your novels can risk becoming didactic and nobody wants to listen to somebody drone on about their position or their argument or their ideal or whatever it is. I just, the way I think, um, that kind of stuff, like your political stance or your beliefs, the way they get on the page is you feel them and you're the one writing the piece. And so some of your anger is going to spill onto the page. You can't help that. And later on in chapter six, some more is going to spill out and it's going to be consistent with the anger that spilled out in chapter two. And so it will start to all kind of cohere and feel like a argument or a system or it will be consistent with each other. That's that's how I do it anyways. And yes, I do think that my fiction that I've been writing lately has engaged some of that. Like I have a novel coming out next summer, which I can't say the title of yet. My publisher wants to keep it secret for a bit, but it's all about um, coming, coming at the rich, I guess, you know, or it started out as coming at the rich anyways. And it's a slasher. There's bodies everywhere in this novel, but it's all about, um, people just trying to live their life in a little town and some rich people move in and things go south pretty sharply. Okay. You got me hooked. <laughs> <laughs> what about, uh, what about the screenwriting work that you're doing? Yeah. Uh, is there, can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? I'm not supposed to say any names or titles or rights, but yeah, I'm working on a um, TV thing and I'm working on a feature right now and they're both exciting and they're, like the feature thing isn't even horror, which is weird because I always do horror. It's, it's weird not to be doing horror, but the the TV thing is horror. And the whole um, like, and when you write a novel, what does what does John Updike say? He says, "When I want to be God, I write a novel." You know, because doing screenplay work is not about a single vision. It's about a lot of visions contributing to something that then will be interpreted by a director and a crew in a studio. You know. So I'm just like, I feel I'm just one cog in a great machine. You know, I'm like, um, who was it? Buster Keaton going through all those gears, you know, kind of like that. Um, but it's very, it's, I realize also 
working kind of as a group like that and you know some zoom version of a writer's room that many minds can meld into to one every once in a while and make significant important steps forward it's it's kind of neat to, yeah. to work like that yeah hey, i always say when something great happens on the screen whether it's a television show or a feature film there's a, an element of magic to it precisely because there's so many hands mm -hmm. in the that go you know that have their there's so many people that have their hands on it, you know, it's like, how, how do you ever make anything good when it has to go through that many different mm -hmm. perspectives, but occasionally mm -hmm. it happens. And yeah. I guess usually it happens when you have a really good director, but yeah. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just, uh, even with a really good director, sometimes it sucks. Yeah. No, <laughs> like, totally. Like, totally. Yeah. Like not, not all of West, not all of West Craven stuff is good, you know, but you know, Casablanca had what, six writers on it and it's amazing. You know? Right. Right. So, Last thing I want to ask you, and it's something that, that uh, you know, goes back to early, something we were discussing earlier in the conversation. Uh, it's a craft question uh, about the way that you work. You know, you talk about writing a novel in a month or whatever it is and, you know, working in uh, like sections of story. Like, you know, you'll get from A to, a to D or whatever in a day's work uh, and move the story forward. I'm curious if you're working that quickly, if you are working from an outline like, are you like, you know, are you writing that first draft from the heart and just intuiting and making it up as you go? Or do you start with some sort of architecture that helps guide you and keeps you on that pace? Um, I, I never know what I'm going to do. You know, I just realized I said John Updike about two minutes ago. I meant John Irving. I don't know how I got this too confused. But um, no, I never. Yeah, I've done it both ways. I mean, I've done so many novels now that I think uh, by this point, I've probably tried to do a novel just about every way you can try to do a novel. And I've failed a lot of times, too. I think failure is a really important part, important part of the process. But the stuff in mind that ends up having the longest legs, I think, is the stuff where I'm just um, out walking the dog, out riding my bike, and I like I hear a line in my head. I hear someone speaking, and I write that down, or I, mem I remember it, and then that one line becomes a paragraph. That paragraph becomes a chapter. And that chapter becomes becomes like six chapters and pretty soon I've got a novel and it's just totally me chasing a sound a, a, a feeling sometimes an image I've tried outlining before and outlining doesn't seem to work very well for me the only times where outlining for me is necessary is when I'm writing a mystery and so I have to like stagger out the clues in the proper pacing or sequence then you kind of need to know when they find the knife you know when this red herring goes away all that kind of stuff but the best ones for me are ones like you know i guess my best example of that would be i have a novel from 2007 called the long trial of melon Dugatti, which is one of those three-day novels and the line that i dreamed up like 15 minutes before the official start time of that was what i remember best about my father the suicide notes and that to me gave me the whole novel because it gave me the structure. I knew that I was going to have a chapter of a kid in a, he was working at a video game call center and then it was going to be intercut with the father's suicide letters. He would always try to kill himself. He'd always fail, you know? And I love it when the first line dictates or like presages the structure like that. That's always the dream. It doesn't always happen. I, w I wish it would. Um, but to me, a novel is like I'm, I'm say I'm out shooting free throws one day out, out on a pad of concrete in the pasture, and a horse runs by, and I think that horse looks interesting, and so I take a run and dive, and I grab onto that tail, 
and I ride that. I just hang on as long as I can. And that's a novel. Sometimes I hang on long enough that it becomes something good. Sometimes like I roll off and hit a fence, you know. But yeah, I don't. I don't plan ahead. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have the title. I don't. I never have the ending. Have you ever like chased a horse down, grabbed onto its tail, and held on? I did that with a steer once. Yeah, um, I was in basketball practice, tenth grade year, ninth grade year. And somebody came in yelling from the door, Steven, Steven, your steer's out. I had two steers at the time, two show steers. And I, so, you know, I jumped in my truck and drive to my house two, two miles away. And sure enough, my, my steer had gone crazy. And, like, we all live, like, acres and acres from each other. But it was just running from house to house and tromping through everybody's fences and gardens. And so I uh, hid behind something, and this by, 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 by the next house, and sure enough, my steer just came blasting past. And I jumped out, grabbed onto its tail, and I was in my basketball clothes still. And I held on to that steer for probably 20 minutes. It drugged me, and I was just so beat up because it didn't care where it ran. It ran over everything. And it finally got so tired that it trotted back to its pen where I had been keeping it to drink some water because it knew where that water was, you know. And I, I let go, and I shut the gate, and it was all good. And like, you were yeah. all but blood, beat up and bloodied and – Oh yeah, man. I was, I was all beat up and my clothes were all trashed. My shoes were all trashed. Everything was messed up, but the steer came home and I, and then I had, then I had to go fix some of the neighbor's stuff, you know, that the steer broken. So is it true that uh, last thing I'm going to ask you, there's a lot to talk about, but uh, like, yeah. is it true that you ran a five minute mile mm-hmm. while holding a snake or is this apocryphal? Yeah, no, that was, I was 20, maybe I was 19 right around there. And my brother, my stepbrother, um, Tommy, he would go out every day. There's this mile gravel track at Texas Tech University where we were undergraduates, undergraduates together. And he was like a dedicated runner that week or that month. You know, and he, would, he would do that. And he'd always tell me to come with him. And so one day uh, I, I chased him out there after we'd already started. And I hit my timer, my watch, whatever, however I was timing myself. And because I, I, in high school, I'd been like about a six minute, you know, mile guy. And, um, and then about, three or 400 yards into that gravel path, there was a big snake laying across the, the path. And with that breaking stride, I reached down and grabbed it behind the head and just kept running. And I didn't know what kind of snake it was. I was moving too fast to see. And I thought it might be a snake that was going to take a bit of me with it, you know? And so I held on to that snake and thinking about that snake, instead of how much my lungs were burning and my legs were burning, I cooked and I, I got in just under five minutes. I was pretty happy with that. And it turned out to just be a bull snake. If I remember correctly, it wasn't nothing poisonous. It would have, it could have bit me. But um, I remember I used to, when my kids were young, that always impressed them. We'd, we'd be driving on a, on a road somewhere and we'd see a snake trying to cross the road. And of course we'd miss the snake because it's really mean to run over snakes. But then I would, um, come back and slow down to about 15 miles per hour open the door and drag and hold my hand out and grab the snake and hold it hold it up out the window while we drove my kids would just scream and they, they thought that was the best thing ever and it was i mean it's kind of stupid because you know you can't tell what kind of snake it is when you're driving past in a car or a truck you know um but i don't know if i would do that anymore i do still pick up snakes on the trail all the time i'm always on my bike up in the dry places the high places and you know there's snakes all over the place and Lately, I just try to get them off the trail, but it's still fun to play with them, too. Well, I think that's a fitting image for the end of episode 666 of the Other People podcast is <laughs> Stephen Graham Jones driving with his screaming children in the car holding a snake with one hand out the window of, of his vehicle. 
Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. It was great talking, man. This was fun. Congratulations on uh, all of your good work and success. And I wish you all the best, you know, not only with what's coming up, uh, you know, in the in your writing life, but also with regard to the pandemic and with the political season that we're in. Like, let's uh, let's all be safe and do good work. And hopefully we, we push through this. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Later. All right, everybody. There you have it. That's Stephen Graham Jones. His latest novel is called The Only Good Indians, available now from Gallery Books. You can find Stephen on the internet at demontheory.net. You can follow him on Twitter at SGJ72. At SGJ72. Stephen Graham Jones, the novel, one more time, is called The Only Good Indians. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All 666 episodes of this program are available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the show, if you listen to the show, support the show, if you can do that. The way to support the show is over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, too, that you can get other people gear. T-shirts, sweatshirts, tank tops, you name it. It's available over at otherppl.com, the show's official website. Otherppl.com. Look in the left sidebar. You'll see a t-shirt. Click on it. Get some apparel. Wear it around. See what happens. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, too, that this show has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. That, too, is free. It's a great app. Get the app. It's a good way to listen. Do it. If you have the time and the inclination, it would also be great if you would rate and review the show over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a great uh, help to the show when you rate it and review it. Good time talking with Stephen Graham Jones. I need to talk to more horror writers. Coming up on the program on Wednesday, I have Nick Flynn, author of uh, the classic Another Bullshit Night in Suck City and the brand new one, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire. 